this is, this is not what we expected. Right? This is not what we expected. This is, this is not what we wanted. This is not what we worked so very hard for. When we planned this service, when we planned Advent, <laughs> when we planned this day, it, it would be different. It would be different from last year. It, this church would be full of people. There would be singing from the pews and not just from a couple of us up here on the altar. Uh, there would be running children and there would be coffee and there would be cakes. This is not what we had looked for. There would be no more social distancing, no need for cameras and screens in between us. This is not what we had planned. There would be no adjusting your stuff, right? Well, here we are. Here we are. We're vaccinated, right? We took care. We did our homework, didn't we? We did our homework. We did social distancing. And it has made a huge difference. It has. We, less people died, right? Slowly we could meet again and we can even embrace again. And we felt like finally it was coming. A different Christmas. A Christmas that we could have a full table full of people. We did what we were supposed to do. We planned. But still, still there are things that slip through the fingers of our strategies and of our plans. And the timing, the timing is terrible. The timing is terrible. Did corona, did the pandemic really have to mess up Christmas? I mean, of all the times of the year, I mean, really Christmas. We baked cookies. We unboxed our decorations. We planned a Christmas tree. We made dinner plans for Christmas Eve, and we've sent out invitations. We booked tickets, or maybe we had hoped to. Yet here we are, here we are, having to deal with it all. We worked hard for Christmas to be perfect, to be an oasis of light in the darkness of winter, a full table after the long, hard wilderness of this world pandemic. Yet here we are, having to deal with what we really did not want to deal with. The broken, painful reality of a world where disease still kills and hurts. Where inequality still means that some people get access to vaccines and health care and others don't. Where loneliness and homesickness still trouble our sleep. Here we are having to celebrate Advent and look towards celebrating Christmas in the real world. In the real world. But then 
where else would it make sense to celebrate Christmas? Where else would it make sense in any real, deep, incarnational, Christ-given sense? Where else would it make sense to celebrate Christmas rather than in the real world? And today's story is about a birth, not yet at Christmas, <laughs> but in the time of Advent, a birth in the time of waiting for the birth of Christ, and a birth that anchors Christmas deeply into the broken reality that we not only see around us, but that we are a part of. I want to read for you about that birth, and we read about it in the Gospel according to St. Luke, which we have been following this, this Advent season. And in chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 57 to 66, and this is how Luke tells us the story. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. A few weeks ago, uh, here in, in OIC, we talked about the announcement of John's birth. We, we talked about when a messenger from God, an angel, met Zechariah in the temple and told him that Elizabeth, his old wife, way past the, year, the, the age of bearing children, his old wife would conceive and give birth to a son. When the angel spoke to Zechariah, he told him two things that are worth recalling today. He told him he should call the child John, and he told them that Zechariah, the father, would be unable to speak until the day that this happens. Because Zechariah had struggled to believe the message of the angel. And this, this is the day when it happens. This is the day when it happens. And something very interesting, yet very common, I would almost dare say something quite natural is going on. Elizabeth has given birth. And 
family, friends, and neighbors are celebrating together with the couple. But they're not only celebrating, they are trying to control. They're trying to control. And I don't mean that they have some sort of Machiavellian plan or something like that. They're just doing what we so often and so naturally do. They are trying to accommodate this unusual, strange situation of John's birth into their lives. So they come to do what they always do. Circumcise the baby on the eighth day according to the tradition of their people and give the child a name in accordance to the custom, a name from the family. Elizabeth, on the other hand, she knows. She knows in her memory and in her own body that this is no ordinary birth. She knows that this is no ordinary birth. It is evident Uh, from, from the story that Zechariah had told her, or probably written, since you couldn't speak, the words of the angel, and she had herself felt her aged womb stretch to give space for what God was doing in and through her. So she tells him, no, he is to be called John. He is to be called John. But they are not satisfied. This is not how we do things, they tell her. This is not how it works. This is not our tradition. We're all happy that God has given you this miracle baby and all. You know, we're happy for that, but we'll take it from here. We know how to deal with births, right? We'll help you carry on with life and normalize it. We'll talk to the father. And surely he will have some common sense and not come with this crazy notion of an angel-given name. We, the readers, we know the story, and, and we may be indignant at the neighbors, at the neighbors' behavior, at their trying to meddle with God's work and with God's plan. How dare them? But they are doing what we do all the time. They are trying to domesticate God and domesticate his visitation, his revelation, his intervening in the world. And I know that domesticate may seem like a strong word, but I think it is a proper one. Because what we try to do is just that, is to make God's visitation, God's revelation domestic. To make it something constrained to the context of our lives and to the familiar setting, to the things we are used to and know how to deal with. We try to make it into something we can understand, something we can name, something that won't change our routines and that will not question our ways. We try to domesticate God's revelation in order to make it easier, easier to deal with, less challenging, less demanding, and ultimately less relevant. Because relevant is uncomfortable. Relevant is inconvenient. So Zechariah, Zechariah, please tell us to name this child Zechariah Jr. And allow us to carry on with our lives. Please stop this nonsense of making God's action to go beyond what we had asked of him. 
Didn't you ask for a baby? You got a baby. Now let us carry on with life. But Zechariah, Zechariah had learned his lesson. While Elizabeth was nurturing the baby in her womb, Zechariah was nurturing the words of the angel Gabriel in his heart and in his mind. And Zechariah won't allow even his inability to speak to stop him from proclaiming that this is about the will of God. And it is about the will of God more than it is about him and Elizabeth. And so Zechariah asks for a tablet and he doesn't write, I would like to call him. No, he writes, his name is John. His name is John. And with that act of faith, Zechariah's mouth is open. His tongue is set free. And we are together with Zechariah thrown back into the mystery, back into God's setting, back to where we have to make questions instead of giving answers. Who then is this child going to be? Because God is at work. And also us. Not, not just those pious neighbors, right? Also us here today need to make that same question. Who then is this child going to be? We need to make that question so that we don't make this story about them. About them, the skeptical neighbors, and not about us, the pious believers. Who is this child going to be? And I want to read from a bit further down chapter 1, from verse 76, in the middle of a song that Zechariah sings in worship and in surrendering to what God is doing. And in that song, Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Who was this child, John, going to be? John was the one who prepared the way for the Lord. John, the one who called out the need for salvation by calling out the need for forgiveness of sins. The one who shouted out again and again, insistently and annoyingly, repent. Repent. Repentance. Repent. John 
was not the guy with whom you share small talk and pleasantries. Repent. Without repentance, you will not recognize salvation. John was the guy who tells you what you try to avoid telling yourself. John is the person making sure that we don't ignore the reality of brokenness into which and in which we breathe and move and into which the birth of Christ happens. The reality of brokenness of which we are a part. And it's ironic, I think, that these neighbors would try to domesticate the birth of John because John's message is precisely one of the main areas in which we try to domesticate God's revelation. We don't like talking about this. We don't like talking about repentance. We don't like talking about sin. We don't like talking about our part in the brokenness of the world. We don't like to talk about our part in the evil and in the pain that we see around us. We don't like talking about our part in the inequality and the unfairness of the world. So we might be tempted to make church to be about tradition and about form and about positive messages as much as we can. And sometimes we do that in reaction in reaction to practices of spiritual abuse that have used the notion of sin as a weapon to hurt us. Sometimes we do that because we want to pretend that it's not about us. And if we have to talk about sin and repentance, we try to sort of domesticate the talk around that as well. And this is one of our favorite strategies, or one of the favorite strategies of those who cherish a weaponized theology of sin. We name specific acts and we name specific lifestyles as sin to demonize the other so that we do not have to deal with the shades of gray in our own life. John, John doesn't buy it. He sees right through our act and he calls us out. And that is annoying and it's uncomfortable. The professional church people of his time, uh, the pious ones of his time, they were certainly not fond of John. Because John wouldn't let people avoid repentance by either not talking about the need for it or by pretending that the others were the real problem. And why? Why was John so keen on pointing out that we are part of a broken reality? Part of the web of death and pain. Why couldn't he just leave us in peace with our homemade solutions for juggling life? Why does John expose the hurt? Because he wanted us to be able to recognize grace. Because he wants to make space for healing. He wanted us to be able to recognize Christ. 
He wanted us to open our eyes and realize the darkness. Because only with our eyes open can we see the light. And I think it's really a loss that we don't talk much more about John around Christmas times. Because I think John helps us understand Christmas. John helps us ground Christmas. We need John to point out the dust collecting on our nativity scenes. The existential emptiness in so many of those boxes under the Christmas tree. The lifelessness of so many a baby Jesus in our plastic mangers. Polished, rose-cheeked, and not moving. And Christmas is a time packed with tradition, right? Packed with celebration, with liturgy, with uh, beauty. And I myself am a big fan of Christmas and of the whole package. But I don't really think that John is asking us to throw it all away. I don't think that's what it's about. I think we can do liturgy, we can do tradition, we can do celebration in order to refocus or in order to distract. We can do church in order to refocus or in order to distract. We can do Christmas in order to refocus or in order to distract. And John the Baptist invites us to refocus this Christmas. Prepare the way for Christ. Prepare your heart for Christ. The tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. John calls us, calls our attention to the dark, broken horizon so that we can witness the sun rising upon it. John tells us today, I think, if he would be here around, he would say, yeah, there's a pandemic. Outside your houses, outside your Christmas decorated living rooms, there is a pandemic and there's hunger and there's pain and there's loneliness and there's loss and there's hurt and there's evil. There's selfishness and greed. Where are you in this picture? Where are you when you step out of church, of Christmas, of your pious front? Where are you in all of this? Where have you been stumbling in the darkness? Open your eyes to the darkness because the sun is coming. Because the sun is coming. There is no space for hope. There's no space for grace. If we don't deal with brokenness. If we don't deal with our limitations. If we don't surrender. If we don't want to become hard. We need to allow John to crack 
a bit of that shell and Jesus to shine in. Open your eyes. Prepare the way. The light is here. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, towards the reality of your life, towards your struggles and your pain, towards your hope and your joy, that the Lord may turn his face and may he bring you peace.